Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph. And the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they, known, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherd. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Scripture verse for the day for the sermon is Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his son, but delivered him over for all of us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we open your words on this Christmas day, may our eyes see perhaps more clearly than ever the greatness of your gift to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we see your arms extended to us in love. May we see heaven's best offered to us as a free gift. And may our response of our heart be one of wonder, joy, and faith. Lord, work this in us for your glory, we ask on this Christmas day, in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas morning comes every year begging a question. What's with all the presents, y'all? What's with all the presents? What's up with all this lavish gift giving that goes on at Christmas? Why are gifts a part of Christmas at all? We've come to expect it as kids, as adults, we've come to expect it but why? Why? What's the original rationale for it all? What was the first stone thrown that has caused such a great ripple effect in history? 
a ripple effect coming down the river of time and flowing over us today. Even if you don't know much about history, I hope you already have a pretty good guess as to the answer of that question. What was the first stone, throne, the first cause of all this gift giving? Our scripture today tells us. The Christmas story tells us that God, the unmoved mover, the uncaused cause, this God at a real point in history gave his son to us. He gave his son for us. And then the scripture asks this follow-up question. Our question today, Romans 8, 32, says this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God, by his very nature, is a gift giver. Everything, absolutely everything flows from him, not as our due, but as his gift to us. Part of the image of God in man, therefore, is found in us reflecting this aspect of who he is. God is a gift giver, and by extension, we also are gift givers. He's the source, like a great downpour from on high, and we are just like little rain gauges, overflowing his gift-giving generosity on the little patch of ground around us. When we reflect the gift-giving generosity of God, we are showing that the image of God has been stamped on us. That image, of course, has been marred. Right? It's been marred by sin, by selfishness, by bad motives, by unbelief. But the image of God, tarnished though it may be, is still there. We see it reflected in the eyes of a father on Christmas morning as his children unwrap and play with their gifts. We see God's image reflected in the heart of a mother as she pours herself out to create a spirit of warmth and a place of welcome in her home on Christmas. Although potentially marred in a million ways, all this gift-giving flows from an originally pure source, from God himself. The God of the universe is a gift-giver who gives lavishly to those who don't deserve it, In this way, God is not like Santa Claus. He isn't checking to see who's been naughty or nice because you're all on the naughty list, right? You are all on the naughty list for they all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. But while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, God gave us the greatest gift of all. That great gift, the great stone that started the ripple effect of all our gift giving at Christmas is no side note in history. 
History itself is divided by it before Christmas and after Christmas. This great gift is the central message of the Bible. And all the Bible has been building up to this great gift being given. God's own son being given for us. This is the gift that changes everything. The gift that ought to change everything. This is the gift that begins the, snow, the snowball rolling down the hill of all our gift giving. And however lavish our gift giving is, has been at Christmas, guess what, church? We cannot hold a candle to God. The lavishness of his gift giving to us at Christmas. He gave us his son. Romans 8, 32. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Reflecting on the Christmas story, through the lens of Romans 8, 32, I want to ask six questions this morning. Six questions. Three questions about our gift giving at Christmas and then three questions about God's gift giving of Christ at Christmas. And if you're taking notes, these questions will serve like six headings as we move through our message this morning. The, the first two of these questions are really more like objections. Objections that we have to deal with before we can make any further progress. These objections to gift giving naturally occur to me, and I bet they've occurred to you at some point as well. The first question is this. Does gift giving distract? Does gift giving distract? Does gift giving distract from the true meaning of Christmas? This is the unspoken question that drives the plot of a Charlie Brown Christmas, right? Does gift giving distract? You've seen a Charlie Brown Christmas, right? It's been aired on TV every year since it first came out in 1965. Uh, we watched it this past week. Uh, we introduced Amrita. Amrita's from India. She joined us. We watched the Charlie Brown's Christmas together, and I told Amrita, this is her first Christmas, I told her this will play into the sermon. Uh, so here it is, folks. If you haven't seen a Charlie Brown Christmas by now, that's on you, all right? Because I'm going to spoil it for you this morning. Uh, in a Charlie Brown's Christmas, Charlie Brown is bemoaning the commercialism of Christmas, a commercialism exemplified in all the other characters in the show. Lucy says that Christmas is it's all run by a big Eastern syndicate. You know that, Charlie Brown. It's at the heart of Christmas. You peel it back. What is it? It is commercialism. It is buying, selling. It is, it is gift giving uh, just for that. Charlie Brown's younger sister, Sally, confirms that narrative as well. She makes her list of wants out, arranging them by size and color, and says, if it's too much trouble, just send money. How about tens and twenties? You can adjust that for inflation. That's a lot of money from the 60s. Charlie Brown begins to spiral into depression. And in an effort to come out of it, he accepts the job as being the director of the local Christmas play. But, of course... The meaning of Christmas isn't found in performing well. And Charlie Brown never performs well. So Charlie Brown begins to tank emotionally. He tanks as the director. 
And in a final act of desperation, he calls out, does anyone know what Christmas is all about? At which point, the unlikely hero steps forward. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. Linus steps out of this obscurity to center stage and recites from memory Luke's account of the Christmas story. The heart of Christmas isn't commercialism. Linus says, it is good news of great joy given freely to all people. For unto you in the city of David has been born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And there also lies the answer to our first question. Gifts don't distract from what Christmas is all about if you connect those gifts back to their source, to God's great gift. Instead of distracting, each gift we give, both small and large, functions like a signpost, pointing us back to God's great gift of a Savior. Linus was right. And even Charlie Brown's pitiful little Christmas tree becomes something beautiful in the end, in the afterglow of hearts changed by the Christmas story. So, does gift-giving distract? Does it distract us from the true meaning of Christmas? Not at all. If we are basking in the true meaning of Christmas, if we're basking in the light of the true meaning of Christmas, then every gift given becomes a small reminder of God's great gift and generous heart towards us. That's the first question and objection. Does gift-giving distract? Here's the second. Does gift-giving spoil? Does gift-giving spoil? In thinking about this question, my mind quickly ran from the comic strips of Charlie Brown to the children's book of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I happen to have a copy of it right here, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, I'm not going to spoil this book for you any more than simply reading the back cover, okay? The back cover. Uh, five children, and only five, were going to be allowed into Mr. Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, the factory where the world's most wonderful candy was made. Augustus Gloop, a fat pig of a boy who would eat anything he could get his hands and teeth on. Veruca Salt, a spoiled little rich girl who screamed until she was brought her heart's latest delight. Violet Beauregard, the world champion's gum chewer who was destined for a sticky end. Mike TV, a smart aleck who was addicted to television. And Charlie Bucket, our hero, who was honest, obedient, loyal, trustworthy, brave, good, kind, and starving. Can gift-giving spoil? Absolutely it can. Just ask the first four children listed here. In the case of these four, their parents made them the center of their world and showered them with gifts, like they were presenting offerings on the altar of their God. Their gift-giving 
was in a way a transactional ploy, a ploy to buy their children's love and affection. But by making idols of their children, they overindulged them. They spoiled them, helping them on their way to becoming self-centered little monsters of a child. But these are not the only parents and not the only children in this book. They're not the only gift givers and receivers. Charlie receives some unexpected and incredibly lavish gifts himself, but there's a difference with Charlie. The impact of the gift giving isn't one of spoiling for him. Why? What makes the difference? The author tells you, on the back cover, our hero has a different heart. A different heart. The character of his heart is different. It's honest and good and kind. Does gift giving spoil? The answer depends upon the heart. The heart of the gift giver as well as the heart of the gift receiver. If in our hearts as parents we make our children ultimate things, then we put far too much pressure on them. And we will either spoil them or else domineer. If In our hearts as children, we make the gifts we receive our ultimate thing. Then we put far too much pressure on them. And we will shuffle around life disappointed from one thing to another, from one gift to another. Because these gifts were never designed to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. But there is, however, a gift For which our hearts were designed. There is a gift that can be our true ultimate. A gift that can bear the weight and pressure of all our hopes. And satisfy all our deepest longings. The gift, that gift was given on the very first Christmas. Not by man, but by God. Himself. Jesus was given to us as the yes and amen of all the promises of God. Jesus is the gift that points our hearts back toward true north. When God's gift is the greatest treasure of our hearts, we won't spoil our children by making them the center of all things. When God's gift is the greatest treasure of their hearts, our children will be incapable of being spoiled by our gifts. They will know that these gifts are but a pale reflection of the great gift that they already have in Christ. In Christ, our gift giving won't spoil and it won't distract. What will it do then? That's our third question. What then does gift giving do? What does gift giving do? Most simply put, gift giving conveys value. Gift giving conveys value. A well-known Christmas short story that illustrates this point 
is O. Henry's The Gift of the Magi. You know that story? It's first published back in 1905. Again, it's been around for a while, so hopefully I'm just reminding you of what happens, not spoiling anything. The story revolves around a young married couple. They're very poor, but Christmas is coming. The wife's most valuable possession is her long, lovely hair. The husband's most valuable possession is a gold watch that he's inherited. But for this gold watch, he's obliged to carry it around on a worn-out leather strap. And you know what happens. In order to buy a Christmas gift for her, the husband, uh, for, for her, in order to buy a Christmas gift for her husband, the wife goes off and cuts her hair and sells it, purchasing a platinum po- pocket watch chain for her husband. But not knowing this, the husband goes off and he sells his watch, buying for his wife ornamental combs for her long, lovely hair. Both gifts are rendered useless by the sacrifice of the other. But does that make the story a tragedy? No, it's not a tragedy. The story is a comedy. It ends with a smile instead of a frown. Why? Because gifts convey value. The young couple can see in the gifts just how much they value and love one another. The Bible says that the same is true with us and God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The greatness of the gift both conveys the love of the giver and it conveys value to the receiver. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. While we were neither loving nor lovely in God's eyes, God gave us the greatest gift heaven had to offer. He gave us himself. At Christmas, God gave to us lavishly, conveying on us more value, more worth than we ever deserved or ever could possibly imagine ourselves having. Let's see the reflections of that reality this Christmas in the lavish gift you received, in the lavish gift you gave. See in them both a dim reflection of the greatness of God's lavishness in his gift giving. God's great lavishness that we see on display here in Romans 8, 32. He gave his son for us. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Okay, having considered three questions about our gift giving, let's consider three questions about God's gift giving from Romans 8, 32. The first of those three questions is simply this. What is the promise? What's the promise here? Romans 8, 32. What is the promise of this verse? There is a promise here. John Newton, the converted slave trader who fought to end slavery, author of the hymn Amazing Grace, he said this about Romans 8, 32. He said, Here is a promise that I would not trade 
for all the gold from here to Bristol piled to the stars. This is a precious, precious promise for God's people. But what is it? What is the promise? To answer that question and to get at the promise, you first need to see the logic that's being used here. There's an argument in verse 32. It's an argument from greater to lesser. Greater to lesser. Look at it again. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but freely delivered him over for us all. That's the greater thing. That's the greatest thing God could have done. He gave us his son. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Everything else is lesser. God has already given us the greatest thing. How will he not also then give us every lesser thing? God freely gave us what cost him most dearly, what was most precious. How will he not freely give you now all lesser gifts? Well, you have to ask the next question, what does Paul mean by all things here? And to answer that, we only need to turn over one letter to find 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21 and 23 say this, So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Now, this isn't prosperity gospel preaching from Paul. It's not name it and claim it kind of talk. I want a pink Cadillac for Christmas. I'm claiming it because all things belong to me, Paul says. Paul, the writer of this passage, he knew poverty as well as time of plenty. And he categorically denied that poverty was rooted in unbelief and prosperity is the result of faith. Paul saw both poverty and plenty as opportunities to live by faith. To live upon Christ. Paul certainly didn't become a Christian in order to get all the worldly things he wanted. Quite the opposite, right? Quite the opposite happened. He said that if in Christ he, he hoped in this world and that proved to be false, then he above all men was to be pitied for all the suffering he endured, for all the sacrifices he made. Paul isn't saying all things belong to you in a grasp for worldly gifts kind of way. You can't go to the Christmas tree at your family gathering and help yourself to whatever you want, saying, Paul said, all things belong to me. All things are mine. That's not what he's saying. He's saying something much more profound and beautiful. Paul is saying here that in Christ, every good, every true, every noble, every beautiful, every holy, every satisfying thing in this world and in the world to come, belongs to you. It belongs to you. Why? Because it is God's gift to you in Christ. In Christ, all things are your birthright, are your inheritance, because it was first Christ's birthright and inheritance. And by faith, you've now been connected to him. What he gets you get. What he inherits, you inherit. In God, giving you the greatest gift and giving you his son, he has also given you every other good 
thing. Why? Because they are all connected to him. Everything. Every good thing flows from Jesus like water from a fountain. And when you have the sun, you have it all. Everything under the sun is yours. This is part of the gift we celebrate every Christmas. This is why we celebrate so joyfully and give gifts to one another because it's a small reflection of what God has done for us. In giving us Jesus, he's given us all things, even transforming some bad things like death. Notice death is in that list. Even transforming bad things like death into something good that belongs to you. For now, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But, you might object this morning, why, what if I still feel discontent? What, that's our fifth question, what if I still feel discontent? What if I feel discontent with God's gift giving? Perhaps life has not turned out as you thought it would. Perhaps Your story has not turned out as you wished. Perhaps you're alone this Christmas. Perhaps the rest of your family has pushed you to one side due to no fault of your own. Or perhaps it is all your own fault. You're discontented today, and it slightly burns you to see other people so content and happy. What are you to do? Let me illustrate my answer with one of my favorite characters from all of the Andy Griffith show. Ben Weaver. Do you know Ben Weaver? The, the meanest guy on the show. There's no one meaner. There's no one more discontent than Ben Weaver. There's one Andy Griffith Christmas episode. And in that episode, Ben Weaver has a man arrested for making moonshine, right? Uh, and throws him in jail. Christmas Eve, he's away from his family, but Sheriff Andy, as always, he has an idea. He goes out and arrests the rest of the family as accomplices and brings them back to the jail, and there they can have their Christmas and and celebrate and be happy. But Ben sees all this happening. He sees the joy taking place in the jailhouse, and he feels discontent being on the outside. So, clever idea, he tries to get himself arrested and has one failed attempt after another until finally he's outside on Christmas Eve night. He's looking from the outside of the jail inside through the bars and falls. And there's a rustling in, in the outside. Andy goes to investigate and he begins to put two and two together. That what Ben really wants is to be on the inside, to be arrested and be part of the party. And when Ben Weaver comes in, when he gets arrested, it is like, from Jesus' story of the elder brother, it's like the legalistic elder brother finally comes in out of the dark and joins the party. If your heart is discontent with God's gift giving, you need to get arrested. That's what you need. Your heart needs to get arrested again, or for the first time. By the greatness of God's grace towards you in Christ. You need to exchange your discontented morning 
for party clothes. The bridegroom has come. Get ready. Change your garments. Change your heart. It's time to celebrate. Ha, I have it. Put on your Christmas crown. Here it is. This is one of my favorite things with Christmas. In England, you have what is called Christmas crackers, which are not crackers you eat. They are crackers that you hold and you pull around the table, and they make a big pop. And one of the things that's in them is a crown, always a crown in a Christmas cracker, along with jokes, and there's also a little toy there as well. And who doesn't look foolish wearing a Christmas crown? Everybody looks foolish together. But I love it because there's, there's a lesson there that most people don't realize it in England, but there's a lesson there. Christian, you may look foolish in the eyes of the world to celebrate Christmas for all it means in its depth of meaning, but that's okay. It's okay to look foolish. A paper crown looks foolish, but... A paper crown is just a placeholder for something better. To me, it's a reminder that a crown of righteousness is promised to all who have loved Christ appearing. To all who have loved Christmas. Christ coming, the true meaning of Christmas. To all who joyfully welcome Christmas for what it really is. A lavish crown. A crown of righteousness is promised. So, I hope you know how, now how to answer the question, what do I do if I feel discontent? What if I feel discontent? Here's our sixth and final question, reflecting on Romans 8.28. What if I'm a latecomer to the promise? What if I'm a latecomer to the promise? What if I'm still on the outside looking in? like Ben Weaver peering through those prison bars, like Ebenezer Scrooge looking in the window at Bob Crutchett's family celebrating Christmas. Ebenezer Scrooge, you know who that is, right? Now there's a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. That's who Ebenezer Scrooge is. What could possibly change such a man? What in his waning years could change the whole trajectory? Of his life. Dickens knew. The author knows. There is only one thing that could change such a character, and it's the very thing that will change you as well an encounter with the reality of Christmas, a heartfelt encounter with God's great gift. Scrooge said, In the end, I will honor Christmas in my heart. And try to keep it all the year. That's what conversion is. <laughs> the hour is not too late for Scrooge. And the hour is not too late for you. Jesus taught us that God is generous to latecomers. He said there was a landowner who sent out workers into his field in the morning. And then he went again, got some more workers at midday, went again, sent them out to his field. All the way to the very last hour, sent workers out to his field. And at the end of the day, what happened? He paid the latecomers the exact same as those who came early. And when asked why, he said, I am free to be generous with what is mine. This is everything belongs to me. I'm free to be generous to latecomers. 
as Jesus was hanging upon the cross, one of the two thieves beside him called out for mercy. He was a latecomer. Last moments of life. He calls out for mercy, and Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In the final hour, God saved one of the thieves upon the cross so that none might despair. It's too late. But he only saved one so that none might presume, I can wait. I can hold off. Don't resign yourself to be a latecomer, assuming that repentance and faith will be there when you come to the end. Christmas comes to you every year like a call, like an opportunity to take hold of God's great gift. All lesser gifts are pointing us to God's great gift, like dim reflections, like faint echoes. All stories, and I've purposely used a lot of stories to illustrate my points today, because all stories are pointing us in the same direction. They're like shadows pointing us to the real substance, pointing us to the truth of God's great gift. It's like Willy Wonka warned Charlie. Charlie, don't forget what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he always wanted. What happened? He lived happily ever after. Church, Christmas comes as a reminder. In Christ, God has given you everything you've always wanted. All things belong to you. Celebrate today. Getting a head start on your happily ever after. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that this Christmas our hearts would be changed. Our hearts would see in every gift given, every gift received, a dim reflection of your great gift given to us in Christ. Lord, may every act of generosity flow from your great act of generosity. May the image of God stamped upon us be seen and rejoiced in as we give gifts and celebrate this Christmas day. Lord, may we rejoice that you in Christ have given us the greatest gift heaven has to offer, and in giving us him, you have given us all things. All things belong to us. May we go out with fresh joy in that incredible reality today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.